is Bloomberg Surveillance. We don't know where the next recession is. All we know is that this expansion is about six and a half years old, and that's longer than the average expansion. We're getting signals which are distorted because interest rates are too low. It would be a terrible commentary and a terrible thing in reality if it takes an overt crisis to get agreement or get progress. And then you're risking things going crazy. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keen. This Thursday before Jobs Day, coming up, Stuart Hoffman of PNC will look at a fair, usually balanced view of the American economy from uh, Dr. Hoffman. Really looking forward uh, to talking. Talking to Stuart Hoffman. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning brought to you by Cohn Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. Regulatory changes can impact your business. See how the experts at Cohn Resnick can help you navigate these complexities. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K. ConeResnick.com. Com. Jobs Day tomorrow. We're sort of catching up. I mean, we've got Governor Romney speaking today. There'll be a lot of political news uh, out of that. With all due respect, with perspective this evening, Mark Halperin and John Heilman, we're trying to get back into economics, finance, investment, the linkages into our international relations. And I guess you do that at 8.30 tomorrow morning. Uh, Alan Kruger, Bill Gross joining us, among other worthies. Right now, uh, Michael McKee, Stuart Hoffman joining us. Which is wonderful because what, what I've never seen anything plunge, crater, surge, dominate, whatever, in the research work of Stuart Hoffman. It is a careful, measured look at where we are. That's a good thing. Stuart Hoffman, it's been too long. Good morning. Very much. Try to be measured, but uh, never afraid to take a stand. Within the take the stand, what is the linkage of this jobs report to what Chair Yellen and other worthies will do at the March 16th meeting. Are they linked? Of course they're linked, but I think it's a very high bar to get the Fed to move, uh, you know, in, in, in their meeting in two weeks. You know, I suppose if this number were just off the charts, three or 400,000 jobs, another five-tenths increase in the average hourly earnings, Maybe that could change the dynamics, but I think the number is important. But given what the Fed has said, that they're monitoring and they need some more time to figure out what these international events and stock market events and tighter or wider spreads, I think they just say, let's buy some time no matter what this jobs report shows us uh, tomorrow. Interesting, because um, if the – the uh, markets had not cratered in January. Would the Fed be on track to raise rates in March, given the data that we have? <laughs> the, the hypothetical, given that the inflation data, not the expectation numbers, but the actual inflation data, the, the PCE deflator, the core, was cruising along uh, 1.3% in the first three quarters of last year, with some upward revisions, and now turns out to have eked up a little to 1.4 in the fourth quarter. And then that January number, although it's still one month, you know, was the biggest increase we've seen in years. So I suppose uh, if the jobs report tomorrow was super strong and the stock market was higher than it was at the beginning of the year and spreads were narrower, uh, maybe the Fed would be on track. But... You know, they're going to deal with the, the reality that uh, the markets 
are telling them at least uh, buy a little time, go a little slower. They probably don't want to see the dollar go up a lot, especially if next week the ECB, as they're highly likely to do, are going to expand their uh, monetary policy, go deeper on negative rates, extend and probably enlarge QE. So, yes, uh, how many heads, how many pin, or how many angels can you fit on the head of the pin? But right now, right. this is the data they have. Yeah, you know, I look, I look, Stuart, at, at Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX. Let's start with a basic idea. Mike and I addressed this in our trip to Washington the last few days. I think we have a handle on the state of austerity in the United Kingdom. What is the state of austerity within the G part of GDP? I, I wouldn't call it austerity. I mean, it's pretty neutral. It certainly was austere in the sense that for the last three years, federal spending was pretty flat, which maybe in the short run is a little austere, but, uh, you know, precisely what we need for the intermediate or longer run. Of course, the tax hikes of 2013 have, you know, been absorbed. Last year, we did get a budget, uh, and Federal spending is going to go up a bit this year, defense and non-defense. We didn't get any additional tax hikes. So at the federal level, I would say it is not austere, neutral. At the state and local level, Mm -hmm. I think it's actually positive. We're seeing, you know, not every state. We're we're seeing jobs growing. Uh, In in the uh, construction report that came out, on public construction, and, you know, those numbers are very jumpy. That's why I don't use words like plunge, because I like to use three-month moving average, which often uh, smooths out a lot of the plunges and the uh, and the spikes. But if you look now over the last three or four months, construction at the public level, highways, roads, bridges, it's desperately needed, is definitely doing better. And certainly you see construction jobs going up, so they're not hiring those people to do to sit around and do nothing, both on the uh, public side and on the private side. So, yes, I think I would say government, state, local, and federal is a positive for the U.S. economy this year. Well, we have the uh, the jobs report tomorrow, and everybody's going to be looking at uh, wage growth. Uh, we may get a little more of a hint from the unit labor cost number that comes out today, right. but what are you expecting? Are, uh, is the trend going to continue? Yeah, I think the trend of going up slowly is going to continue. Uh, you know, we, you know, I, I, you can use the employment cost index or the number that, of course, comes out is the average hourly earnings index comes out monthly with the employment report. I mean, that measure, really both measures were stuck at 2% or a little under 2012, 13, 14. I'm sure that's where some of this angst, not only that short run, but longer run, uh, we see in the, in the political environment. But last year, finally, particularly in the second half of the year, we started to see some acceleration in that. I tend to like to look at it as a two-quarter moving average or year-over-year, and the year-over-year number in January was 2.5%. I think the Mars number just for the month of February will back off, be maybe a tenth or two, but still be up 2.5% from uh, this time last year. So I think wages are accelerating. Let me recast what I asked Scott Wren earlier, who's an investment equity strategist. Same question, folks, for an economist like Stuart Hoffman. The basic idea of a single-digit world, in your language, Stuart, a new lower, dampened nominal GDP, a new terminal rate or potential GDP, are we prepared for that? 
By we, do you mean America, the country? or the, the country, the, the nation. Yeah, the, no, the nation. I, I don't think the nation, it, it, whether they're prepared or not, they're not taking it well. And, you know, we look back at this recovery. It has fortunately continued this long, and I still think we're maybe in the seventh inning. I don't think uh, I've never been in the recession camp. You know, a month or two ago, it kind of felt like uh, the markets were saying the economy is in the ninth inning. There's two out, and the pitcher's at bat, and the home team is about to go down. Well, I never bought that, uh, that, that view anyway. But if you look at the, the, as I said, slow wage growth over the last five years, over the last 15 years, uh, I think the country wants to grow faster. It needs to grow faster. And I think that's where, you know, some of this frustration we're seeing, both on the, I'll call it left and right, uh, is coming from that um, this, we, we got to do better. And it's uh, productivity. It's, you know, the prescriptions on how to do it are quite different uh, between less government re- regulations or, you know, on the left, uh, it's a big tax hike. Right. But there's a feeling that the U.S. economy is not living up to its potential and that if that's the best our potential is, we've got to figure out a way to get it well, faster. Let's drive that forward. Our conversation continues with Stuart Hoffman of PNC. Mike, uh, Herbalife has a bid uh, to review 56 down to a printed bid of 48. I'm not sure the pre-market stock price uh, got there, but that 48 is lifted up to 51.30. Uh, There's a, I'm going to call it, you know, an 8% move or so, 56 down to 51. Yeah, you're pretty close, 8.9%. General tone. Yeah, is the, uh, is the drop in, in pre-market. Uh, and and that's better than where we were 13% earlier. Again, uh, some real challenges uh, all in all uh, with their unit accounting, uh, a, a complex and convoluted set of headlines. You wonder where this story will uh, move, drive forward. PricewaterhouseCoopers is their, uh, their uh, auditors, uh, according to Bloomberg. Uh, Herbalife right now, 51, I'm going to center tendency, 51.20 on Herbalife. Uh, futures are negative one, Dow futures uh, negative 10. We look at equities, bonds, currencies, uh, commodities, oil, 34.62 flat. Brent near 37.36, 79. Michael McKee mentioned he gold earlier, uh, elevated, 12.44. Good morning to uh, not the gold bugs, but people that have rationally talked about a stronger gold market off of an extended two- and three-year bear market. People like James Steele at HSBC. The yen, 113.90. Weaker yen this morning. All right, let's check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael? Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney will give a speech later today calling out Donald Trump. Romney, who was the Republican presidential nominee in 2012, says Trump is a phony. Four Republicans will gather on stage for tonight's Fox News presidential debate in Detroit. Ben Carson will be a no-show, having signaled that he is on the verge of officially quitting his White House bid. A white Alabama police officer is charged with murder in the shooting death of a black man. A family lawyer says Greg Gunn was walking home when he was killed outside a neighbor's house. An attorney for Montgomery officer Aaron Smith calls the arrest a political witch hunt. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Michael, thanks so much. We're going to rip up the script with Stuart Hoffman, PNC. Neil Dutta, just out with a fabulous chart 
showing the bipolar nature of this American economy. You need to stay tuned for that. Futures Negative 2, Bloomberg Surveillance. The news update brought to you by Mercedes-Benz. This month, your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealers welcome spring with limited-time offers on select models like the sporty CLA and versatile GLA, each engineered and priced to move. Visit MBUSA.com today. Surveillance continues. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. stock index futures are a little changed to lower this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. That's right. U.S. futures are quiet today. Dow futures currently lower by 20 points. S&Ps and NASDAQ futures are lower by two. The U.S. 10 yield at 1.85%. And European markets are mostly lower this morning. France is down 0.4%. On the U.S. economic front at 8.30, non-farm productivity and initial jobs claims. At 9.45, market U.S. services PMI. And at 10 o'clock, ISM non-manufacturing composite, factory orders, and durable goods orders. In other news, Herbalife said active new member data had errors. Shares are down 8% pre-market. And in deal news, the Wall Street Journal reported Samsonite said near a deal to buy Toomey. After the bell last night, American Eagle Q&EPS view topped estimates. Costco missed. And regarding earnings this morning, Joy Global Q&N loss was wider than expected. Tech data beat. And Sienna Q&N adjusted EPS also beat. Finally, some key Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. At Bank of America, Alcoa cut to neutral. Valero Energy raised to neutral. And Marathon Petroleum raised to buy. Sherwin-Williams raised to buy over at Citigroup. Intel raised to outperform at Robert Baird. And Freeport McMoran cut to neutral versus buy over at UBS. Live from the first of breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? All right, thanks, Bill. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K-Go. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Futures negative two and uh, a churn to the screen as well. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Invesco believes it's time to bench the benchmarks to consider active management and factor-based strategies. Find out more at Invesco.com slash high conviction. Without question, the chart of the day, Neil Dutta, Renaissance Macro. Folks, I, I'm not going to send it out because it's his proprietary uh, chart. We protect copyright here. Contact Renaissance Macro uh, for his wonderful chart. Stuart Hoffman, you know the chart. Layoffs and layoff announcements, the American economy, and then separate energy. I had no idea how stark it is. I mean, we know energy's flat on its back, but the layoff announcements for the rest of America are shockingly good. How does the Fed handle that? Well, the Fed knows. I mean, it can't directly target the energy industry. Uh, I haven't seen the chart, but, you know, the Challenger gray Christmas yeah. number was out. It did show a drop in uh, in layoffs in January and February. January and February, though, are still up by uh, 33% from a year ago. But as you mentioned, uh, 40% of the layoffs, 25,000 people in the month of February. Now, those are announced layoffs. That doesn't mean they're out of the job yet, but will be soon. But look at what's happened now for, we'll see tomorrow, probably tomorrow, the 14th straight month of losses in the energy industry. And they've been averaging about 10,000 a month. Uh, since, frankly, January of 2015, and this suggests 
They may be picking up the pace of that, uh, and that's one of the reasons why. I mean, I've got about 200,000 rising jobs tomorrow, but for the whole year, you know, we're thinking we'll, we'll create closer to 2 million jobs. Last year, we created 2.7 million, and part of that difference is layoffs in the energy industry going in 2014 to adding to laying off in 2015 and probably even deeper in 2016. But from the Fed's point of view, uh, you know, they can't target the energy industry. They know there's a supply issue. I think they have to look, as you said, at what's happening outside of energy, knowing both in energy and manufacturing there are what economists like to call multiplier effects. You throw the stone into the lake and the ripples yeah. go around, and that is going to affect other industries, other companies, and other individuals. But you're right. right. So far, it's been extraordinarily contained. And, and, Mike, you know, it goes to Kruger's Two Americas. This is a different debate. There's a debate about labor economy and wage growth and a broader macro view. This is about the micro dynamics of job formation and disformation. It's a different story. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the uh, least followed numbers by economists is the Challenger Job Cuts report because it's worldwide, not just in the United States, and many of those jobs never actually get cut or it's attrition. But when you, uh, I mean, the real question, uh, Stuart, is of course, uh, when you have, we knew that there is, there have been layoffs and layoffs, more layoffs coming in the energy industry. It's when it uh, follows on, when when the energy people are no longer working and uh, no longer spending money at the, the local stores and the local stores go out of business, that's a problem. And I note that in North Dakota, the unemployment rate is still 2.7%, even after all the layoffs. I think that gets to the idea that, you know, while we are reading about announced layoffs in energy, nobody in maybe the transportation industry, the airlines or the hotels or the motels or technology or some parts of manufacturing said, we hired 20,000 or 1,000 people this month because our energy costs are down, and that is a big savings, and we're seeing a little stronger demand. Uh, so you you it's, you know you always hear the bad news and there is plenty of it and legitimate, but what you don't see is the good news. The only way you kind of see it in general is look at the total job numbers, and if they're up two hundred thousand tomorrow, despite the layoffs in energy and looking over the last twelve or thirteen months, jobs are up uh, you right. know, about two hundred thousand a month, even absorbing the losses in energy. So there are positive effects of people getting jobs or keeping jobs or maybe now getting better wages because of the drop in energy. And I've, I've been adamant about the fact that the net impact on the U.S. economy of lower energy prices is positive, but mm -hmm. a lot of distributional effects, and there's not much the Fed can or should do about it. And, by the way, it's also helping Europe. It's helping Japan. It's helping China. Maybe not enough, but think of where the U.S. economy and some of those economies might be. If gasoline was coming up on right. four fifty a gallon, and uh, oil prices were still ninety yeah. or hundred bucks a gallon uh, a barrel, yeah, it's not to say the least. Stuart Hoffman, brilliant. Thank you so much with PNC uh, Financial. Michael McKee, John Tucker, emailing me yesterday in the middle of the show. I think you know as our as our proxy for cheap New Jersey gas, uh, Mr. Tucker was suggesting a dollar fifty six. Off of, as that was my memory. 
could we get under a dollar? Would we, that no, be? You know, I'm not ready for that. Well, on an inflation adjusted basis, you're there. Um, but uh, we need John to come in and tell us what he's spending his extra money on. Yes, we do. No question about that. Uh, economic data will review productivity later today. Bloomberg surveillance. Coming up, the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover Above and Beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. It is 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. Our economic indicators today brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Here's Vinny Del Judice at the First Word Desk. Michael, economic news, jobless claims, they are up by 6,000 to 278,000, topping Forecast revised data on fourth quarter productivity, meantime, down 2.2% less than forecast. Unit labor costs up 3.3%. Again, jobless claims rising last week up by 6,000 to 278,000. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, I'm Vinny Del Judice. Let's go back to New York. Vinny Del Judice, thank you very much. What do you much. think, Mike? Uh, well, <clears throat> I don't know whether you call a, a move from a negative 3%, a 3% contraction in productivity to a 2.2% yeah. contraction is good news or not, I suppose, on a relative yeah. basis. Uh, but the unit labor cost drop, 3.3%, is uh, right. catch people's yeah. eye. Can you adjust the mic of our next esteemed guest? He is, um, he, he's, guest. Been, he's been searching <laughs> for something to do, moving into spring and summer and on to Cleveland and Philadelphia. Maybe we could get him to be the GOP czar. I mean, it's, I think there's a job opportunity. Well, they need there. somebody. To right. well, I don't. I don't think I'm qualified, but they definitely need somebody. Well, the, go ahead, Mike. Please. We're we're watching what's going on with fascination and wondering. Uh, we were talking uh, over the last two days while we were down in Washington about how Wall Street is seeing all this. I mean, leaving aside individual candidates, but the fracturing of one party, um, the the move to the left uh, in, in the other party, um, the people with the money and a lot at stake, how are they viewing all of this at this point? I think with fear and trepidation. I, I think people on Wall Street, people on Wall Street are, are basically not that ideological in many ways. They have, you know, they have a point of view. They have, they may belong to a party, but they're not extremists. They're kind of pragmatists. They're kind of centrists. Uh, a bit like the majority owner of, of Bloomberg LP, and there's our there's our disclaimer. There's our disclaimer. Uh, who owns this radio station? Uh, and and so they view all this with alarm. They they you know in an extreme case they worry that we could go off the deep end into into some unknown political area the way countries in Europe have from time to time, and even uh, short of that they worry about uh, about you know who's going to be in the White House. Uh, you know, Mr. Trump enjoys, as far as I can tell. Zero support on Wall Street. Uh, I, I don't know anybody in the business community. Well, I shouldn't say anybody, but virtually nobody in the business community is supporting him for any number of reasons. I think on the Democratic side, things have gotten a bit uh, what I would call better in that I think Hillary Clinton's path to the nomination is now 
uh, quite clear. And so while she may have moved a bit to the left during this primary season, I think I, I don't think we're going to have a socialist as the Democratic nominee. But Steve Retner, that's the issue. You nail it. Uh, absolutely. People shift through an election year. Do you see any perception that any of the three Republican frontrunners right now can shift as Reagan did to the middle of this nation's psychology? I would say, I would say, uh, I think, I think it's possible that Rubio can, and and I don't know whether it, this is a backhanded compliment, but I think he's shown that he is, how shall I put it, flexible in pragmatic. his opinions, pragmatic. Uh, on immigration, as you know, he's had mm-hmm. a variety of opinions. On choice, he's had a variety, you know, pro-choice, uh, choice, choice versus life issues. He's had a variety of opinions. So I think he is mm-hmm. capable. Of, of moving. Ted Cruz is a complete extreme ideologue who in some ways would be worse for the Republican Party, I think, in a general election than Trump. Interesting. And Trump has right. Trump has deep psychological you, problems that make him uh, really unfit to you run. You were a student of our history on this. I think of William Jennings Bryan or any of the other uh, movements Tom, coalescing. Tom voted in that election. Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, coalescing, you know, 1880 forward, coming out of the Civil War. The word the last few days has been movement. If it is a movement that Mr. Trump is affecting, how do institutions staunch that movement so it doesn't get over 30x percent of the electorate? In the long run, this, what I'm about to say has been discussed many times, but, but it, what seems very clear to all of us is that Trump represents a group of Americans who have not done well economically over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, who feel marginalized, who therefore uh, feel threatened by immigrants and things like that and makes them more nativist. And the way to deal with this is not – there's no short-term fix. The way to deal with this in the long term is to take care of these people and find them jobs, help them with – increase their incomes – and give them a better life. That's really what. That's really what's bothering them. I Why think, are we doing it? Oh, God, Mike, please. I don't mean. Well, that. When you look at the markets, uh, there doesn't seem to be any reflection of horror uh, in what's been going on at, uh, in, in the stock market versus uh, what's going on on the campaign trail. Uh, investors have to discount the future, even as they look at this and the negatives that you're citing with these candidates. Is is there a view as they game things out that? Yes, these people may get elected, but the way the American system works, not much terrible is going to happen. I think there's a few things going on. First of all, I think that uh, the, the probability of any one candidate getting elected is obviously not even 50 percent because you still have primaries going on, then you have a general election. And so if you started doing probability math, I think you'd calculate that the chances of Trump being elected are maybe 20 or 25 percent between having to get nominated and then having to get past Hillary Clinton. I think the market probably today would guess that Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president. And I don't know that that's that threatening. Yes, she has some different ideas, but she's a sensible, rational person. But I think the other thing you alluded to that the market is relying on is the gridlock in Washington and the fact that it's unlikely that no matter who gets elected, there's going to be some massive policy shift uh, uh, getting Mm. through Congress. Steve Ratner, thank you so much. On thank short you. notice with Willard Advisors. Great, great analysis. And then Governor Romney again speaking. This will be covered. Michael Barr will have full coverage of this uh, uh, through the morning and, and into the afternoon as well. On to Michigan and then on to uh, Florida. Look for the announcement of Steve Ratner as GOPs are coming from the White House sometime <laughs> <laughs> in, the near, in the near future. Futures negative 2, Dow futures negative 10. Uh, West Texas, 34.45 a barrel. 
right, let's bring in Michael Barr and get the latest news. Michael. Mike Tom, thank you very much. Former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney plans to deliver some strong words against Donald Trump. Romney plans to call Trump in a speech later today a phony and a fraud. The former Massachusetts governor says Trump is playing the American public for suckers. The excerpts are from the speech Romney plans to give later today at the University of Utah in a bid to dislodge Trump from the top of the Republican Party's presidential race. Meanwhile, Trump fired back. On ABC, Trump called Romney a failed candidate and should have beaten Barack Obama. Millions of people are joining the Republican Party because of me. And you know what? The Republic establishment, Republican establishment's probably going to give it right back and go back to the old days of Mitt Romney, who couldn't win. Trump will take part in tonight's Republican presidential debate on Fox News. Only four podiums will be on the stage tonight for the debate in Detroit. Ben Carson issued a statement yesterday saying he does not see a political path forward and will be a no-show. South Korean officials say North Korea fired six short-range projectiles into the sea off its east coast today. The launches came hours after the U.N. Security Council approved tough sanctions on Pyongyang for its recent nuclear tests. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Mike Labar. Mike, Tom? All right, thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stash. Mike, ready or not, the flake gate is back. Oral arguments today in New York as the NFL appeals to a three-judge panel that's lost last year in district court. If balls were deflated, and if so, how? Not really the issue here. The NFL will argue Commissioner Roger Goodell had the collectively bargained right to suspend Tom Brady for four games. The union will contend the NFL made mistakes in its application. Neither Goodell or Brady will be in court. The decision could be many months away. The Yankees exhibition opener in Tampa was a wild one. Yanks were down 7 nothing, ended up winning 10 to nine on a drop fly ball in the ninth inning. Manager Joe Girardi was asked about the month-long suspension just given to his new closer, Araldis Chapman, for domestic violence and use of a firearm. The thing to do when you have issues like this is to learn from them and try to be there for people. And I think he's ready to move on, and, and he took responsibility for what happened, and he wants to be better as a, as a player and a person. Chapman can pitch in spring training, but not in the regular season until May 9th. Yankees and Phillies today, and the Mets open up with the Nationals. March Madness, conference tournaments underway in the Northeast, wins for LIU, Fairleigh Dickinson, and the top seed, Wagner. St. Francis was ousted. America East, top seed, Stony Brook moves on and gets help when second seed and three-time defending league champ Albany got upset. Seton Hall's four-game win streak came to an end at Butler. Fordham beat Duquesne. Rutgers still winless in the Big Ten. Had to play second-ranked Michigan State and lost by 31. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashauer. John, uh, thanks so much. Uh, futures negative two, down futures at negative 13. Again, a churn all in all to the market. You really got to believe we're slotted into a jobs day uh, move uh, as we move to 8.30 tomorrow morning. Alan Kruger and Bill Gross will join us uh, to review that data. I've got to scroll down here to get to it. 195,000 is the final sample. We make it a tick on that here as we get to tomorrow uh, with the unemployment rate similar, 4.9%. Michael McKeon, Tom Keen, Coast to Coast. Worldwide Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by NYCB. Ask about their My Community Interest Checking with free NYCB online and mobile banking. Earn more, get more. Visit nycbfamily.com for details.
Global Business News 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. The number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits rose last week to a level that's consistent with steady improvement in the labor market. Well, jobless claims unexpectedly climbed by 6,000 to 278,000 in the week that ended February 27th. The four-week average dropped to the lowest since the end of November. European stocks halting their longest rally since October, oil falling from an eight-week high, and bonds in the region rising as investors await fresh indications of the strength of the U.S. economy. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures are little changed to lower, down one and a half points. Dow E-mini futures down 10. NASDAQ E-mini futures down less than a point. The DAX in Germany is down two-tenths percent. The 10-year Treasury is down one thirty-second. They yield 1.84 percent. Yield on the two-year, 0.84 percent. NYMEX crude oil down six-tenths percent, or 20 cents, to 34.47 a barrel. COMEX gold is little changed, up 50 cents to 12.42.30 an ounce. The euro, a dollar 0.904. The yen, 113.85. Kroger down almost 8 percent in early trading after fourth-quarter comp store sales missed analyst estimates. And Herbalife is down 6 percent. The nutrition company under federal investigation for allegations of fostering a pyramid scheme said it overstated growth of new customers and distributors last year because of database errors. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance, folks. Uh, worldwide, we say good morning. Uh, Michael McKee and Tom Keene. It is 849 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Jonathan Bernstein, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Ben Carson has finally dropped out of the Republican presidential race. Ted Cruz is presumed most likely to benefit since he and Carson do best among Christian conservatives, although Carson's supporters may not have been a monolithic bloc. Still, Small shifts in votes can make a huge difference. In Tuesday's Arkansas primary, for example, Carson received 6% of the vote, while Donald Trump beat Cruz by two percentage points. If Carson hadn't been in the race, would Cruz have won? Perhaps. True proportional allocation is rare on the Republican side. Winning, even if by just one vote, is disproportionately rewarded. That system of winner-take-more, winner-take-most, and winner-take-all delegate distribution explains why Cruz and Marco Rubio could still easily gather enough delegates to win the nomination even though both, Rubio especially, are off to slow starts. All one of them has to do now is win consistently. A four-candidate field with Ben Carson out doesn't hand Cruz or Rubio anything, but Carson's exit gives both of them a slightly better fighting chance. I'm Jonathan Bernstein. For more view, please go to BloombergView.com or ViewGo on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Jonathan Bernstein has been very strong recently. He's written short, pungent, immediate notes out on Bloomberg View uh, with all that we've seen. I'm sure he'll do that as we move to Michigan and on to Florida in uh, less than two weeks. Is it, am I right on that, Mike? Less than two weeks? Well, it's the 15th. It's, yeah. Yes. So I guess next, that's less than two weeks. Next Tuesday yeah. is Michigan, and the Tuesday after that yeah. is, it's not, it's not just Florida, it's Illinois yeah. and uh, a whole bunch of other states yeah. as well. Our next guest was smart on Tuesday. It sounds like that old, what were, The Cure, their song, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> da-da-da-da. Stephen Stanley has been just outstanding on a centrist, cautious tendency on American GDP. He works with Robert Sinch at Amherst Pierpont and joins us now. Steve, you've been dead on on a more muted yet okay economic growth. Can you move the vector up? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, and I think the uh, the productivity numbers this morning speak to that as well. Even though there was a small upward division in the fourth quarter, productivity for the year last year was a half a percent. So wow. you know, you're just with, with population growth slowing down and, and productivity not really doing much, you're not going to get a, a ton of uh, trend growth. What uh, what does that imply for the longer for for the for, I don't want to say longer run, but for the, this year? Well, I think you know, it, from the Fed's perspective, it's it's a mixed bag, right? Because the economy doesn't look as strong, but at the same time, if if potential is lower than we thought it was, then we've probably made more progress in terms of taking up slack than we thought, and that's exactly what we're seeing in the economy now. The labor markets have gotten pretty tight, even though growth has been at a pace that we would have considered very mediocre throughout this expansion. What's the then the forecast for uh, your forecast for the pace of expansion at this point? Well, you know, we've been growing at or a little above two percent for several years, and I think we may pick up a little bit from there in 2016. I think there are a couple of things that were drags last year that are not going to be quite as, uh, as as big a deal. I think once we get past the early part of the year, this inventory correction is probably going to be mostly behind us. So I don't think inventories are going to continue to drag on growth as they have over the last few quarters. Um, and I think the other thing is we're, we're probably getting much closer to the bottom in terms of uh, oil and gas drilling activity. That's been a huge drag on GDP over the last several quarters and, and certainly not done yet. But I think, you know, certainly as the year progresses, we'll probably um, see yeah. less of a drag there as well. Is, are the markets in tune? We had a little bit of a respite here the last two weeks or so. For you as an economist, when you argue with Bob Sinch and throw coffee cups at him, is Bob Sinch's world more in tune with Stephen Stanley's world? Um, we're coming into somewhat better alignment. I think if you go back a month, the the markets were thinking that the U.S. economy was absolutely positively headed right into a recession. And, you know, I think that was a gross overreaction, and people are kind of stepping back from the precipice a little bit on that. Um, and, and as a result of that, um, Fed expectations have moved up a little bit, and the markets are almost pricing one whole 25 basis point for the entire year now, whereas there was a brief period of time uh, last month where there was basically nothing uh, baked into the cake. So I, I, we're moving in that direction. Um, my guess is there's still more to go to get us into better alignment, but, um, uh, you know, we're at least not quite as divergent as we were um, a month ago. Well, it's interesting because uh, there have been a lot of people in the bond markets who've suggested that maybe the markets are not prepared for what the Fed is going to have to actually do. Are you in that camp? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a theme, um, and and certainly I've been uh, very early on that, unfortunately. But I think that's a, that's something that I've talked about for several years. That once the Fed finally did get going, they're likely to have to move faster and buy more than the markets are, are expecting. I think the first inkling of that really was the was the inflation data for January, where we got 0.3 increases for both of the core measures. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one thing that could press the Fed, I think, into acting more aggressively right. than what they'd like to do. Oh, along that line, I'm glad you bring it up. If there's 28 flavors of measuring inflation, Mike, I have a tendency to the Cleveland CPI, which is core-like, but with the adjustable outliers every month, month to month to month, the mix changes. That's elevated above some of the measures. Are, are, the, are the other measures catching up with more elevated, more malleable measures? 
Well, I think you're going to see that. Um, we, we have the one that's been the outlier to the downside is the one that the Fed, of course, pays the most attention to, the core PCE deflator. And that one has moved in the last three months from 1.3 to 1.7. So we're starting to see a little bit of convergence there. The gap between the CPI measures and the, and the PCE deflator measures have been unusually large. And I think those will close, uh, begin to close this year and, and more than likely close by the PCE deflator measures creeping a little higher. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, there's an analogous measure for the for the PC deflator data that comes out of the Dallas Fed, mm-hmm. and that measure has been running, you know, 25 basis points or so higher than the than the, the core PCE numbers. So, um, and I think a lot of people at the Fed have started to emphasize that alternative measure. So I think their their understanding of it. I think what's interesting is just at the point where it seems like inflation might be ticking higher. All of a sudden, people at the Fed are starting to, to, you know, play the shell game again, and now we're going to talk about inflation expectations, which they fear may be moving lower. So there's always a reason to be dovish, I guess, and uh, and we'll see how it goes. But if these inflation numbers continue to be firmer, I think they're going to be forced to uh, to, to respond. Uh, talk to us from an economic point of view, um, leaving the Fed out of it, but uh, how inflation expectations relate to inflation forecasts. Well, I, you know, I think what we've learned in economics over the last 20 to 30 years is that inflation expectations are very important. I, I still don't think economists have a very good handle on how exactly inflation uh, develops, but I think one thing that people will agree on is that um, one important input is what people expect inflation to be because there's a certain inertia there. If people expect 2% inflation, then you're, you're kind of predisposed to get that in the absence of some sort of a shock. Um, I, I think for me, I, I don't think that the average person out there is so sophisticated that they, you know, that they can give you a 10 basis point swing in their inflation expectations, and it's very meaningful. So I, yeah. I, I take the numbers more qualitatively than quantitatively, but yeah. but I certainly think that when the Fed runs policy as easy as it's run for several years, that's one example where people may be surprised, but the fact is that that should leave a mark yeah. in terms of inflation over time. Steve, if you have a chance to get into Manhattan sometime in the next three or four years, can your people talk to our people? We would love to get you into the studio. We will extend it. We will work on that. Uh, Steve, we could do, uh, Mike, the Nirvana of a one-hour Steve Stanley, Robert Sinch extravaganza. Yeah. That would be extraordinary. Stephen Stanley with Amherst Pierpont uh, having to put up with Bob Sinch's discussions on Yen and uh, the rest of it. Mike, I can't, you know, somebody gets it right. And uh, it's pretty pretty impressive uh, how they took morning in America and brought it down a little bit. Indeed. Yeah. Futures negative one down, futures negative eight. Bonus round, Mike McKee and I in New York City in one piece after Super Tuesday. Your bonus, another hour of Bloomberg Surveillance.